0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Alison Pulio. Alison is an ecologist, a natural historian, an environmental photographer and an author. And she joined me to talk about her fascinating new book, Underground Lovers, Encounters with Fungi. We traverse a wide range of topics relating to the fungi kingdom, Including conservation, indigenous knowledge, the various types of fungi, as well as the role that women have played in mycology and the study of fungi. We talk about this and much, much more. To get onto fungi... One of the all-time favourite topics on this show, and as I said at the top of the show, it is both fungi and trees, and they are so interconnected in different ways. But of course, as we'll find out from Alison Pulio, there are so many different types of fungi, so many different things that they do in their environments. And so it's going to be, I think, an absolute delight to talk with Alison again. So, I am about to speak now with Alison Puglio, who is an ecologist, a natural historian, an environmental photographer, and she's the author of a few books now. The latest book that we are going to discuss is Underground Lovers Encounters with Fungi. That's out through New South Books. We've had the pleasure of speaking with Alison in the past about wild mushrooming, which was really looking at foraging and foraying and identifying mushrooms. And then also the first chat we had with Alison was about the allure of fungi, and that was published through CSIRO and featured a number of Alison's gorgeous photographs, as does this latest book as well. And uh, Alison, she has so many talents, but at the moment she's been conducting a lot of workshops and forays taking people out in the field because it is autumn and so there's a lot of sporing bodies that are above ground for us to be able to look at. So without further ado, I welcome back onto the show, show favourite, Alison Pulio Hi there, Alison, and thank you very much for coming back on. Oh, good morning, Amy. It's always an absolute pleasure to talk fungi with you. I love it too. It's a true pleasure. I really love, probably doesn't cut it, but I'm sure everyone will tell how enthusiastic we both are during this conversation. I was saying off air, I have the best listeners because they've been updating me about the fungi in their areas because I was really a bit sad that the sporing bodies were taking a while to pop up where I was and I was starting to think that it was not going to happen, which I know is not possible, but I was getting plenty of gorgeous photos of fungi from others around the state sharing them with me, so I'm so lucky to get a statewide up But you're also out in the field at the moment a lot, aren't you? You've been out in New South Wales and Victoria, out in the country, taking people through some of these beautiful forests and really bringing fungi up close and personal. And obviously, that's a great chance to talk about your book.
1: Look, it's been just the most amazing autumn so far, even though, as you say, I mean, it did get cold quite quickly and the rain came late. So in some areas there have been fewer sporing bodies pop up than perhaps we usually expect, but there's just such a an amazing groundswell of interest across a wide spectrum of different people, not just your foragers and forayers, but I'm finding people like filmmakers coming along to workshops, fashion designers, people writing crime fiction, all kinds of different interests. So it's been wonderful to be out in the field in all kinds of different forests, as you say, across New South Wales, ACT, Tassie, Victoria. And I've just come down yesterday from Beechworth and Warradjee, that region, northeast Victoria, where even though it was down to minus three <laughs> in the morning, there's still been plenty of fungi around. So it was wonderful to work with the laying care people up there.
0: Wow, you're getting around, aren't you, Alison? Like, I'm so impressed. Uh, And it's good fun. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the the whole book really is almost a travel book in a way because it also takes us to different locations, and that's how you introduce different subject matter in the book. And we will get to that in a moment, but. I'm going to assume no knowledge of some of our listeners just in case they haven't heard our previous discussion. So I thought we'd just set the scene for people who aren't familiar with the third F, the fungi kingdom, and talk a little bit about the basics of fungi, because as you point out early on in the book, they are very much maligned. They're not often seen, as we've just discussed, they're often below ground. We don't always see them above ground and of course autumn is the perfect time to visualize them but they're also very much ephemeral they have lots of different associations so could you just take us through and introduce us to this kingdom and why fungi are not part of the other f's why they're not animals why they're not plants why do they have their own special kingdom and where did they come from
1: Well, absolutely. So, as you suggest, Amy, the the fungi very much were the third F or the forgotten kingdom, and so much of our concept about what nature is, what biodiversity is, or what the environment is, has always been premised on flora, on plants or fauna, animals, and that the middle, the third F, the fungi, haven't really been part of our conservation programs, of our education. If you go to university here, you can do zoology or botany or environmental science, but fungi rarely come into the picture. It's very hard to study fungi at an undergraduate level in Australia. You can at a postgraduate level. And also I think just the fact that they, as you say, they they are so ephemeral. We see those sporing bodies such as mushrooms or puffballs or corals and other forms pop up for just a few weeks of the year. Most of the year we're not aware of them because that mycelium, the actual fungus organism that forms this amazing tapestry of long cells called hyphae under the soil, that's the living, growing, feeding part of the organism, it's out of our sight for most of the time and it's only when you scratch around in the leaf litter or turn the compost or roll over some bark that you're likely to see that network of these long fibres called the fungus mycelium. So I think that invisibility, that ephemerality, but also the fact that We've been so suspicious of fungi for so long that the default response, when people send me an email, they're worried about fungi in their gardens and I think, wow, why is it they're not excited about the fungi? Why are they worried? And I think that if you look at how mycology, the scientific study of fungi, started in Australia, it started with the appointment of a Scottish agricultural scientist called Daniel McAlpin. He was employed specifically to look at rusts, that is, a microfungus that can cause a disease of our cereal crops. So I think how fungi started was very much from the standpoint of fungus as problem rather than fungi as holding the whole terrestrial, you know, ecosystems together. But that is changing, Amy, as you've seen, and, and thanks to the great work you do on radio as well, we're, sta- we're now starting to recognise that fungi are doing incredible things In our ecosystems, they're holding soils together. They're underpinning functioning forests. They're connecting up plants. They're providing food. They're recycling organic matter. They do all these incredible things. And when they become problematic, it's often a reflection of something that's out of whack in that system, whether it's an agricultural system or a park or garden or something. They're not usually the cause of problems, but rather a symptom of a synergy of bigger changes in that system that favours the flourishing of one species.
0: Mm, It also reminds me of something, another negative association and and another point of your point you've just made which is you know when something's out of whack when something's wrong and we've seen so many states in Australia have a lot of flooding major floods and you know I've, I've had people contact me saying that they you know are really struggling they're not even living in their house because they've got mold all through their walls now and that's becoming a bigger issue because of climate change and of course mold is a certain type of fungi so is it any wonder that they get this bad reputation because there are these things that I guess they can be seen when they are not a beautiful sporing body above the ground, when there's something else that can disrupt human life, then suddenly it becomes... A negative, and it's hard to disentangle those reputations.
1: Absolutely, and they go back for centuries throughout history. and A lot of them did come from misunderstanding what fungi were and what they do. But you're right; most of the fungi that actually cause problems to human health, if you think of things like athlete's foot or tinea or even dandruff, comes from a fungus. These things are often microfungi, or the mould in the flooded house, or the the rust or the smut or the blast on the cereal crop. Most of these are what we call microfungi. We can't. They don't actually produce a visible sporing body like a mushroom. They often release their spores directly from the mycelium. But most of the macro fungi, the familiar mushrooms and puffballs and other forms, they generally don't cause problems in systems and even the microfungi. again it's usually a sign of that system being out of whack in some way the conditions have changed to favor a particular organism but certainly those ones I mean no one wants to live in a house full of mold of course that's got a high chance of causing you some kind of illness or just feeling you know unwell being in that moldy environment and but what's interesting what you said about those floods I remember driving through New South Wales at that time and on one side of the road there were paddocks Agricultural paddocks Mm. that were completely flooded. And on the other side of the road was a forest which was not flooded. And I thought this was a fantastic visual example of how when your soil is intact, as it is in a forest system that hasn't been, you know, too heavily managed, when you've got that mycelial architecture and plant roots, you've got air spaces in soil, the water can filtrate. And when we see that flooded paddock that's often a sign that the soil has actually been so compressed through the use of heavy machinery or hard hooves or, for some reason, we've lost that mycelial network, perhaps through tilling, or digging or some kind of soil disturbance, when we actually lose that architecture in the soil, the soil ends up either being completely waterlogged or the water sits on the surface. So I think that's quite a visual example of soils that are not in in good condition, whereas the forest soils can actually still filtrate that water, allow it to gently trickle down through that network of mycelium and plant roots. So I think again, you know, that the flooding, we can see those very visual examples of how important it is to keep that network of fungi in the soil.
0: Yeah, for sure. It does take us to some parts of your book, which we'll get to in a minute, around soil because that comes up quite a bit. But it also reminds me of conversations I've had about logging and how destructive it can be for those you know, heavy machinery types to not only log trees, uh, which clearly creates a major disturbance, but to then compress the soil in those forests, which, as you say, would have a really healthy ecosystem if it weren't for human disturbance and human intervention.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not saying that we should lock the forest up and they should be untouched. I think to, to get people interested in nature, we want as many people as possible to go out and experience the wonderful things of being in a forest, whether it's the birds or the river or the fungi that you're interested in. But it's always about degree and extent. And when we have clear felling or extensive roading through forests, or a lot of soil disturbances. There's a risk, as you say, that we compact soils, that we spread pathogens that we don't want deeper into the forest where perhaps... Those parts of the forest haven't been exposed to them before. So it's always about the extent of of that disturbance. So often natural... Disturbances aren't so intense that we... I mean, I'm sure we've had some huge storms and huge floods, but natural disturbances, usually the forest has enough resilience to recover. But when we clear it when we put extensive roading through, that's that takes a long time to get those fungi back because every tree we lose, we lose the fungal partners that are associated with them. As you, you know and you've spoken about, those mycorrhizal or plant fungus networks are pervasive throughout forests. Every single eucalypt forms connections with multiple species of fungi. So So when we lose the tree, we lose the fungus as well. And when we lose the fungus, we lose all that recycling of organic matter and all that architecture. So it goes hand in hand. We lose the trees, we lose the fungi, we lose the condition of the soil too.
0: Yeah, and you draw on some fantastic scientists and experts in this book, and there's even a whole section on women, which is fabulous, and we'll get to that. But early on in the book, you bring up the great work of Suzanne Simard, who I'm a big fan of, and she's written... A fantastic book, Finding the Mother Tree, but she also does really fabulous research on those connections between old trees and their fungal partners. And you take us through a little bit of her work. Could you tell us a little bit about what we've learned from Suzanne Simard about those connections between trees and fungi? Absolutely.
1: So we've known about this for a long time. We've known about these mycorrhizal or plant fungus symbiosis for a long, long time. But ideas like this take a long, a long time, not just to be accepted by the scientific community, but to get into the public sphere as well. And I think the work of Suzanne Simard, who's a North American forest ecologist, where she actually showed that not everything going on beneath the soil is necessarily competitive, that there's potentially a sharing of resources among trees. And not even the same species... Or genus of tree, but among different genera of trees, which is a really astonishing discovery, that, yeah, perhaps it's a little more socialist than we thought there under the soil. So she showed this. Part of the issue, I mean, there has been some people concerned about the work of of Suzanne and people like Peter Voleben in that the, the the concern of scientists is that sometimes these powerful metaphors, such as the wood wide web, which was the one that was coin, coined by a journalist working for Nature magazine, and he originally reported on her work back in 2000, this is such an appealing metaphor. You know, the idea that the world wide web or the internet is mirrored under the soil in the wood wide web, or rather the other way around, that the internet mirrors what's under the soil, this is such a wonderful metaphor that sometimes the metaphor can get ahead of the science. So we still don't really know the extent of these networks. We don't really know the importance of these networks or the finer details of them. But even if you... Even, like I said, some scientists don't like these metaphors or the anthropomorphising of calling it a mother tree. But I think what it has done is radically increased people's awareness that all those trees in the forest aren't just lone statues, disconnected. You know that I think people now realise that every time they walk into a forest, there's a whole lot more going on beneath their feet that they can't see that perhaps they that we weren't aware of previously and also I think it changes the way we think about the garden or the area we're vegetating or the forest or whatever I think it gives us another overlay in the way we think about them and also gives us a certain responsibility how we participate in that forest and the implications of what we're doing so I think what it's doing even if We don't yet have the full picture of the science. I think it's radically increasing public awareness to think in a bigger way about forest ecosystems and the interconnections between different species.
0: Yeah, yeah. It certainly makes it easier for us to get our heads around when... It's concepts that we already understand because I think it was funny. I saw a video of Peter Voluban. He was saying, well, I don't speak tree or treeish, so I can't speak in their language to explain what they're doing, so I can only speak in English. And, you know, this is why I use these terminologies or or descriptors. And he said – Interestingly, that the mother tree, that term has been around for centuries in Germany. So it's not even a new concept or a new descriptor of what was happening with trees, which I was really astonished by because I didn't realize it had such a long cultural usage in Germany. But clearly there's a lot behind that that English speakers aren't as much aware of, perhaps, as the German speakers are. I wanted to now move into some of the amazing places that you take us to, Alison, because there are so many amazing places you've been, clearly more than once. And as we've discussed in previous chats, you say that you get to experience both autumns, so the autumn in the Southern Hemisphere and the autumn in the Northern Hemisphere. Some might wonder if you're low in vitamin D. (laughs) when you're (laughs) going for, you know, that part of the seasons. But I think it's the best time to go travelling. So that would be my dream is to be when it's cold and beautiful. I think it's great. So let's start with one of those cold, potentially inhospitable, but I think beautiful places, and that's Iceland. And you talk about Iceland a few times in the book. The first time you talk about it is in relation to lichens. And I think they're just such a fascinating thing. We've spoken about these before, but I really want to go over the lichen discussion again and to get our heads around what the lichens are, because as you've said in the past, you know, they're not just one organism, are they?
1: Absolutely not so. They are living in a symbiotic association and lichens are astonishing things. And I think oftentimes most people think of fungi they can visualise. We all know the umbrella-shaped cap-and-stalk-style mushroom and many people are familiar with the puffballs or the corals or the jellies, but few realise or or more and more people are realising that the lichens are also classified within the kingdom fungi and they're probably the oldest of all the different types of fungi and so every lichen is essentially a symbiosis or an alliance a relationship between an alga and a fungus and their cells are intertwined often there are yeasts and other organisms in there as well so it might not even be a partnership but even a community of different organisms living in association and the great benefit of this is when you double your talents you combine your talents you can occupy much more extreme environments and this is why lichens often referred to as extremophiles or lovers of the extremes and if you think of some of those really inhospitable places in Australia such as the hot dry sandy desert country you'll actually find lichens there forming what's called a cryptogamic or biological crust on the soil or sand surface and actually keeping that sand from blowing away trapping a bit of moisture trapping some nutrients or you'll Find them in places like in the intertidal zone, and I often use the example of, say, somewhere like Wilson's Promontory or Wineglass Bay in Tasmania, those wonderful big orange granitic boulders, that orange colour is actually a lichen, living in, again, that very Mm. inhospitable environment where you've got the guano seabirds and you've got sand-laden abrasive winds, you've got the splash of salt water. Yeah, Yeah, windy and salty, and few organisms can tolerate those kinds of extremes. Mm. So the lichens are colonising almost every available substrate there is, and they're often the first pioneers when we've got soil disturbance. I mean, soil very rarely exists in a you know, bare soil where really exists below the tree line it's usually a sign of some kind of disturbance but as soon as that soil becomes disturbed or as in iceland that rock becomes revealed as the glacier recedes among those first pioneers are your lichens. so astonishingly ad, astonishingly adaptable talented <laughs> organisms in many ways and they are part of the the fungus kingdom and probably among the best known of the fungi in australia
0: yeah, well, you do see lichen in all kinds of places in Australia. I mean, I I said a while ago that lichen was growing on my sister's car roof, so <laughs> <laughs> she since had it washed, so it's not there anymore. That's a shame. I, I know, <laughs> but it did get it was there for a long time, so it had its fair share of her roof. Um, <laughs> but you know, it. I also read about how lichen. Apparently, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but I read that they were a food source for reindeer. Indeed,
1: and and possibly not just reindeer. I mean, we don't really know in Australia whether there's certain mammals or other animals eating lichens because they've got such a, a vast cache of different types of chemicals, over 200 chemicals. They actually are quite, I guess, uh, unpalatable for... I mean, we, we don't mm. often... There are some records of people eating lichen, but I think that you'd be pretty desperate to need to do that. It would be in a time of absolute, you know, hardship that you'd be eating lichens. But reindeers, certainly, I mean, there's not much else to eat in those, mm. you know, very, very remote, cold places. That's probably all there really is. But certainly... Lichens have been used throughout the centuries for dyeing—that's d D-Y-E-I-N-G, y e i n g—dyeing textiles, for use, use in for their chemicals, for all kinds of other things as well. So they contain things like sunscreens and and and, and other chemicals like almost insecticides. So fascinating organisms. And very, very diverse as well. We've got over, I think, about 2,000 species at least that we've identified in Australia. And and while some are very tolerant to those harsh extreme conditions, others are highly sensitive. And so some lichens are actually indicators of low levels of sulphur dioxide and other chemicals in the air, things like the beard lichens or USNEA, that's Usnea species. So we know that they only grow in areas where you've got very high air quality. So they can tell us quite a lot about the environment just by the presence or absence of certain very tolerant or very intolerant species.
0: Wow, that's really fascinating to hear. Yeah, I'm now imagining reindeer nibbling on lichen, which is the (laughs) weirdest picture in my head right now. Indeed. Yeah, put that in the Christmas cards. Like (laughs) Rudolph's having some lichen. Let's also talk about dying, as you said, D-Y-E-I-N-G, so dying, because you talk about your experience going on country with the Yorta Yorta aunties and there are some things called puffballs which are also now known as dye balls um, which you tell us about could you share that experience with us but also drawing on the the puffballs and what dye balls are
1: Certainly. So up on the, the mighty Dungala, or the Murray River, the, the Yorta Yorta women up there, the aunties, are setting up the first project via Sonia Cooper. So Hilda Stewart and Greta Morgan, two of the, the elders, are setting up a project to try and track the ethno use of fungi, so that is the human use of fungi among the Yorta Yorta people. And as we know, so much of this knowledge has disappeared when people are taken off country, when they're forbidden from speaking their own language, when they're forbidden to do the dances that pass on the knowledge of how those different animals and plants and fungi are used, this knowledge quickly gets lost. But it's an absolutely wonderful project and the first that I know of, the first ethno project that I'm aware of in Australia. And so I had the great privilege of going out on country with the aunties, wandering along the river and looking at these particular dyeballs. And even though when I asked them what are these called, they didn't have a name because that's been lost they were fascinated to to share their knowledge about how they're used and we know various different groups have actually eaten them again in times of real hardship and before the the puffball actually turns to a spore mass while it's still very hard and firm but if you do a cross section through one of these die balls you'll see this absolutely stunningly beautiful tessellated pattern of the different spores in their different developmental stages and if you run your finger over it you'll get this astonishing green yellow tan colored stain on your finger that will stay there for quite a (laughs) while and we know that these have been used not just by aboriginal groups but also maori people in new zealand and various others throughout the world to stain various to dye various textiles and we've got a fabulous mycologist and textile artist and painter called katie syme or katrina syme in west australia and she's used these dye balls for years to dye things like cotton or silk, or wool and using different mordants with the dyes you can get this a range of different colors that that will be expressed by the puffball so we know lichens as well as puffballs and other fungi have these amazing pigments and just because a fungus is very brightly colored it doesn't mean that that will necessarily have those pigments and also a red fungus doesn't necessarily produce a red dye which is astonishing I wasn't aware of that not being a textile artist myself so it was amazing to work with the, the Yoda Yorta women, also with Katie, and also there's a big dying uh, contingent of mycologists in Sweden who've been for years working with different textiles, different fungi, and looking at how these different fungi produce different colours. So fungi aren't just used, yeah, for food and medicines, but for all these other other reasons as well, such as... I mean, I for example, the... What were they called? Those Tweed Harris suits that came from the... Hebridean Islands of Scotland. They were actually originally all died using lichens from
0: Scotland. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm, indeed. I'm a big fan of the Outer Hebrides, so that's a really cool little fact of knowledge. Oh, yeah. I'm not surprised, actually, because they are one of the wildest places you could ever go to as well. So no doubt the lichen have a party over there.
1: <laughs> Undoubtedly. And in those very cold environments you don't really have that many trees you've got a shrub layer and then you've got this amazing lichenscape which was also the case in iceland because they've lost so many of their forests there i mean people forget that iceland once was possibly up to 50 percent forested we think of it today as just being this very elemental landscape of rock but back you know before the vikings we think up to 50 percent of it actually did happen have forest on it and now we're down to about one percent of it is actually forested although they are trying to they've got very active forestry revegetation programs happening but now it's pretty much a lichenscape which is astonishing to to witness the lichens pretty much are the the dominant type of I was going to say plant but of course fungus that you'll see in the landscape. Wow
0: that's so cool. Alison there's so much more in this book and one theme that comes up quite a lot is conservation of fungi. And it's something that we originally touched on a little bit, but this book really does take it a lot further and give us a better idea of the conservation landscape and I guess, the regulation framework of how you would approach conservation, but also how we conserve them in a practical sense and, you know, what the barriers are to that. I did want to start that conversation about conservation with your opening anecdote, because we are a politics show as well, and it seemed quite interesting to me, the comment that you heard. You say that I doubt I'm the only person on the planet to be perplexed by some politicians. I was once asked by an Australian federal member of parliament to justify why conserving biodiversity mattered. And I was momentarily stumped. Where was I to begin? It's like trying to justify why we should conserve our arms or legs, our mountains or rivers, or the air we breathe. I'd wrongly assumed it was self-evident. I mean, I don't know. I think that is a tough question because I feel like most people would assume that is a basic truth that most people would accept. So, how do you deal with that situation, Alison? I wonder, it's probably not a common question you get, is it, that people are asking you to justify biodiversity and why we should look after it?
1: Yeah, look, I I, I was stumped and I I have to come up with more creative ways
0: to respond to these sorts of
1: questions. But I guess what happens when we coin a term like biodiversity, it almost becomes like this thing that we're disassociated from. It's this thing out the window, oh, there's this thing called biodiversity that's written into our planning permit or it's this annoying thing that's in the way of where we want to do this development. Once we just called it nature Mm. (laughs) And, and nature seemed to be everything and we were part of that. Now it's almost like this package thing and it's a slightly more clinical term or something, I guess, and I think oftentimes, yeah, a biodiversity plan has seemed like it seems to be like an accessory rather than something with which we are inherently connected so I guess for me it's always about trying to draw out those connections and and fungi I guess almost all of our our biodiversity our policies our frameworks our monitoring programs our national park management plans they've always pretty much included flora and fauna and fungi haven't actually been part of them so my main interest in fungi is actually in their ecology and their conservation and a big part of what I'm trying to do is bring that layer of the fungi into people's thinking when they are writing prescriptions when they are looking at you know perhaps monitoring an area or writing a new national park management plan to bring fungi in. And what's interesting, Amy, a few years ago I looked at the management plans of 40 different national parks across Australia and only a third of them actually mentioned the word fungi. Even though these were biodiversity plans for the park, Mm -hmm. a third of them mentioned fungi, only mentioned the word fungi, and usually it was only at that very blunt level of the kingdom fungi, whereas they talked about plants and animals down to species level. And of that third, almost all of them were in a negative context. (laughs) So it was fungi were this enemy to this other thing called biodiversity, i.e. plants and animals. And so the the actual importance or significance of fungi as you know, interconnected part of that national park wasn't really recognised. Fortunately, that is changing. But if you look at how, for example, our, our burning regimes, our land management regimes, they're almost always almost always based on, say, the the presence of a particular vegetation community or perhaps an endangered orchid or perhaps a charismatic mammal, fungi very, very, very rarely come into that equation. So I guess I'm just trying to drop the fungi into thinking around when we think about how we set up a conservation program or we set a a reserve or we manage a landscape, that if we think about that foundation from the start, the actual fungi within the soil, everything we do is going to be better. I mean, to think, to look at just the trees or just to look at the mammals or the parrots, it's really quite, you you can't look at them in isolation. If we try and protect that particular orchid, we know that every orchid needs a fungus to even germinate. Or if we're trying to protect that endangered bandicoot, at this time of year, that bandicoot could be feeding almost solely on fungi. So to look at these things in isolation, is quite outdated thinking. And fortunately, there are many people now within land care, within conservation. I haven't found them yet in, in, in <laughs> parliament, but yeah. thinking about fungi in this much broader way and actually bringing them into the thinking around how we could conserve and how we protect environments.
0: Mm. And I know there are groups that have come up to try and conserve fungi and you open the book talking about the International Society for Fungal Conservation the Congress there which was in North Yorkshire that you attended. There's also a group which was launched by evolutionary biologist Toby Kears called the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks, which sounds like almost James Bondish. <laughs> um, that sounds really awesome. So there are these groups that seem to be focusing on fungi, and for the, for example, that group, the acronym being SPUN, uh, looking at mapping fungal networks and quantifying biodiversity hotspots. You point out that clearly it's difficult to conserve fungi if you don't know all the species that are out there. And, you know, they're not always visible. Some might be not around for years and then suddenly they appear like that coral fungus that you talk about in the book. But there's also an issue with conservation and this need to have very charismatic or aesthetically pleasing fungi because often people want to protect those ones more than the quote-unquote ugly fungi. So, you know, could you tell us a little bit about locally here some of the endangered fungi some of the the fungi that need to be protected and i know you say a lot of them aren't that particularly good looking but they you know are quite important to us
1: Oh, Amy! No such thing as an ugly fungus. <laughs> I know. I'm that's.
0: What, I'm using air quotes. Everyone on the radio.
1: <laughs> so yeah, really, really interesting question. And there's lots of big challenges around fungal conservation because they have been thought of so negatively throughout history. But I guess the first part of that is increasing public awareness. And I think that's what I'm seeing a lot of conservation groups do now. They're producing their little D out folder, field guides for people to take into the field. We've seen those for birds and orchids and mammals for years but now a lot of these land groups and conservation groups are very proud of their little guide that shows their local fungi. In terms of knowing about endangered fungi, when something hasn't been monitored, it's really hard to know, is it really rare or endangered or is it simply under surveyed? So if you look at the, something like the Atlas of Living Australia, which is an online repository for biological data, flora, fauna and fungi, there's lots and lots of records for flora and fauna, but we're only just starting to build up those records for fungi. So it's very hard to talk about rarity until we've actually done those surveys. There's certainly a couple of species we know that are rare because the habitats they live in are rare. So, for example, there's one fungus called tea tree fingers, which could, be, could come into that ugly fungus. group Mm -hmm. for some people because it's not this beautiful charismatic showy thing but it grows on old unburnt tea tree and if you think about where tea tree grows it's coastal and a lot of our coastal areas have been developed for housing because everyone wants their lovely sea view and to be able to walk to the beach but we've lost this habitat type where this particular fungus lives so traditionally how we've tried to protect fungi is to simply protect as wide a variety of different habitats as possible in the hope that this surrogate or umbrella approach scoops up the fungi as well. But we don't know that that always works because fungi do have quite specific and particular requirements. So the more we can do, the more surveying, the more we can understand about what's out there, the better we can protect them. And most of this survey work, it's not coming from mycologists because we have very few mycologists employed in Australia. It's coming from the public. It's your field naturalist, your citizen scientists, your interested people. So, for example, yesterday I was so so thrilled when we were out looking for fungi that there was three or four people uploading those records to iNaturalist. This is another online repository of biological data. And that record, those records are so vitally important because it helps us understand what fungi are growing where, are they changing in distribution, are some very seldom recorded and perhaps they are rare. So there's lots of big questions around distribution, around rarity. But one of the best initiatives that happened in recent years, you're probably aware of this concept called red lists. Yes, and, and red lists, yeah, are basically listing species that we think are vulnerable or at risk of extinction. And the very first red lists were formed oh, 60, 70 years ago in and Switzerland, as part of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. But fungi weren't included on those lists. So just a few years ago, two very innovative mycologists, Greg Mueller and Anders Dahlberg, and also three actually, and Mikhail Krikarev from Sweden as well, they set up the Global Fungal Red List Program, which means people who can nominate species that they think perhaps are vulnerable at risk of extinction, they're then assessed by a committee who determines if they really are rare or not, and they end up on these red lists. And even though that red list doesn't give them any formal legal protection, it does prioritise them for conservation programs and possibly funding. So these have been absolutely tremendous initiatives in the last few years and many Australians have been involved in that Global Fungal Red List project which is very inspiring.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was really interested that there were about 28 actually on that list of endangered species. So at least there are some that we know about across the world. So it's important to conserve fungi for the reasons that you mentioned, but also one other reason which stuck out to me in your book was about fungi's role in sequestering carbon. And we often hear about old growth trees being really important in sequestering carbon, obviously, for climate change. But what role does fungi play in this in terms of climate change?
1: Absolutely. And this is the work that you mentioned before, the SPUN network that Toby Kears and Merlin Sheldrake set up. And what they're trying to do is track these fungal biodiversity hotspots because we're essentially the more fungi you've got, the more mycelium in the soil, the more biomass of mycelium, the more potential to trap trap carbon in the soil. So I think that whole idea of keeping forests in place and their fungi within the soil, we're actually maximising the chance of pulling that carbon down into the soil. So there's lots of people working on particularly within the agricultural sector, looking at ways to try and keep fungi and uh, keep carbon in the soil, and it's always focused on plants. So, I haven't looked in real detail yet at how Toby is measuring this, but she's certainly the one who's leading the way at looking and measuring how much carbon is actually trapped by fungi in soil. And oftentimes, if we were to pull out a, a teaspoon or a spadeful of soil, there'd be all kinds of organisms in there. If it's a healthy soil, and we're often aware of the invertebrates and the plants, but we think one of the largest parts. Of the biomass, the actual cells of organisms in that soil is made up of that amazing entanglement of fungus mycelium. So there is research underway, certainly, to look at the value of that in sequestering carbon in soils.
0: Yeah, it's so cool, this science that's happening around fungi Indeed. at the moment, isn't it? We're kind of running out of time, but there's an area that I really want to cover off on, and that is the chapter nine, Women as Keepers of Fungal Law, earlier on in the book, you talk about how Aboriginal women were often the ones who were looking for truffles in the desert and that being one of their roles. But clearly there are many different ways that women have had a relationship to fungi across the years, across history and across cultures. And I wondered if you could talk to us about you know, why you decided to have that as a chapter, because I know it is a really important thing to you.
1: Sure, absolutely. So when New South Publishing approached me and asked me to write the book, I was aware that in the last five or six years, we've had about Oh, a dozen new publications, narrative non-fiction book, books on fungi, which is really exciting. And all of those have come out of the UK and the USA. So I took these books, such as Merlin's and, and Suzanne Simard's, who you mentioned, and Peter Vollebins. I looked at the tables of contents of each of those to see where are the gaps? What are the themes about fungi that haven't been covered in these other books? And one of them that seemed so glaringly obvious to me was the that women and the role of women in the history of mycology hasn't really been written about. And so we know across cultures that we think oftentimes it was women who were the keepers of fungal law. Knowledge was passed down from grandmothers to daughters to granddaughters. And even though it's, it's hard to be absolutely sure about that because women's histories often weren't recorded, we do know that many women were honorary Workers, honorary meaning honoured but not paid, for male scientists who were looking at fungi. So the women were often doing the collecting of specimens, they were doing the written descriptions, they were doing the illustrations, they were submitting specimens, drying them, preparing them, submitting them to various fungaria, but they were seldom acknowledged for their work. And the, probably the most the person that people know, know most about is Beatrix Potter. We know that she produced all these illustrations and amazing images, uh, paintings of fungi and the amazing work she did but right here in Australia we've got women who are honorary consultants to herbaria who have been working again for decades collecting species describing new species and I like to highlight their work particularly someone called Pam Catcherside who was a teacher all her life and then when she retired she spent another or still doing it another 20 odd years collecting fungi and really unusual Usual places like Kangaroo Island and in the more remote desert areas, collecting those specimens, preparing them, dry, drying them. She's discovered over 20 new species. <laughs> She's submitted 5,000 specimens to Herberia and Fungaria, and those specimens are such vital repositories of DNA for future researchers. And yet few people know her name. And so Pam is very retiring, very shy. She doesn't like to wave the flag about herself. But I think without that work of those voluntary women, we'd be so much further back in our understanding of mycology. So I just wanted to make a shout out to those women in the book who've contributed so much to our understanding of fungi.
0: Oh, I couldn't agree more. And it is That's a theme across so many different sectors and areas, isn't it? Women, unpaid, voluntary work, always unsung as well. So, yeah, I'm really glad you did do that and to focus on the role of women because it's so much needed. And yeah, it's a really good point that in this particular field with all the books that have come out, women are not mentioned.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's great, Amy. People like yeah, the wonderful mycologist good. Lynn Body in, in, in the UK and Susan Simard, as you mentioned, and Toby Bikis. We are seeing women really playing a vital part in the field of mycology today. So it's a yeah. really important and fantastic change.
0: And you, Alison, let's not Forget. I'm, I'll keep. I'll toot your horn. Um, Thanks, Amy. Yeah, no, I really do love not just your writing and your communication about fungi, but also your photography is so special. And you do say in the book that you've kind of moved away from scientific photography of documenting the best type of a, a certain species of fungi, and instead you've now changed your approach to how you see fungi through your photography lens. Could you tell us a little bit about how you approach photographing fungi and also just even just personally how you approach fungi in a forest because you do take us through that relationship that you establish with fungi on the ground of the forest floor you know getting dirty in the leaves and at sometimes risking your life of stampeding animals as well.
1: (laughs) So I I guess originally working as a scientist most of the photography I did whether it was fungi or, or other organisms the photos were always very Diagnostic, So that the sorts of images you'd find in a report or a field guide that allows you to see all those relevant features so that you can identify that species. You need to show the particular details of different parts of the mushroom and, and that's a really important thing. But I guess over the years what I've realised is that we're starting to know a little bit about our species now and I think what we need in conservation is for people not just to know about them, fall in love with them so i guess i'm Mm. trying to take more inspirational than just informational shots so i'm appealing to the heart as much as the head so when someone looks at that image it doesn't matter to me quite so much anymore if they can identify what that species is but if they look at that image and they feel inspired by it they feel fascinated by it or they want to go and find it if it captivates their imagination and curiosity then for me that's just as important as being able to put a name on the species. So I've moved a little bit that way towards trying to appeal to the heart as much as the head and, and spending time on the forest floor. I mean, I guess I know a lot of people now are photographing with phones, which is so wonderful and all these other ways, but I still like to have my big tripod and big camera out there and oftentimes I'll be on the floor for an hour trying to coax that mushroom into smiling for me or try, mm-hmm. trying to capture it at its best. And I think that prolonged, detailed observation of watching something, and not just the mushroom, but the great menagerie of different invertebrates that will that will visit that fungus while I'm watching it, that's when I've really learnt a lot about fungi, just that long-term observation up close on the forest floor and also making time-lapse video. When you come home and watch those videos, all these things happen that you don't actually observe there in the, observe there in the field. So I think in today's fast-forward world where we're rushing from one thing to the next to actually slow down sit on the forest floor that's when you really see these details and people commented on that yesterday we were out foraging uh, I should say and we'd see one mushroom we'd all sit down to have a look at it and then while we're sitting there people see all these other fungi amongst the leaf litter so I think that slow slow mushrooming approach detailed observation that's when we really see the detail and, and notice how ubiquitous how widespread and how diverse they are.
0: Yeah. No, it's um, it's so true. It is a real experience to have that close up relationship and observational experience with fungi. You realize they're not that scary anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's not something to be afraid of. Just don't eat it. And if you think it's poisonous is, you know, the main thing, because as you say, touching a fungi is not something to be scared of either. You need to engage your senses when you do something like that.
1: Absolutely. Look, we don't really know, we don't really have any evidence that anyone's ever been poisoned from touching a fungus. You have to actually ingest a toxic fungus to be poisoned by it. That said, some fungi are really bacterial, so you should never put your hands on your face or anywhere. You should always wash your hands. But this is a, a hygiene issue, not a toxicity one. So even a toxic fungus, you won't get poisoned from touching it. You've got to ingest it to be affected by it. But always be cautious. Always, you know, wash your hands afterwards. Don't touch your face or whatever. But I think so long as we keep distance from fungi, we view them from a distance, we don't touch them, we're afraid of them, we're never really going
0: to connect with them or regard them or conserve them. No, no, it's so true. Alison, we've just scratched the surface of this book. There is so much I didn't get to ask you about and I'm glad because it means more people will have to go out and read the whole (laughs) book (laughs) Uh, because there's so much in there about parasitic fungi and the ghost fungus and Maori uses of fungi and how mammals interact with fungi, are like so many different things. It's just an utterly fascinating read and it's written in such a way that you really go on this traveling journey with you but also like kind of sparks your imagination as to what is happening obviously it's grounded in all this amazing science and personal experience as well so thank you so much Alison for sharing your expertise your passion and your advocacy for fungi and for writing this absolutely fantastic book underground lovers encounters with fungi um, really it's just been such a pleasure to chat with you
1: Oh, thank you so much, Amy, and it's just wonderful to see how many people you've drawn to fungi as well, and we're getting that that fungal word out there. So, thank you again so much for your time and your interest.
0: Oh, my pleasure. I'll keep doing it. It's an ongoing project, isn't it, Alison? See you out there in the forest, Amy. Indeed, (laughs) and make sure you check out Alison's website because you still have some workshops and forays going around in various parts of the country. So, some may have already visited your area, but there are others still to come. Absolutely. Excellent. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.